democracy is a worse governmental system except for everything else that exists. So in the same way, capitalism gives us a gift and a curse of simplifying all value down to a single metric, which is a dollar. The value that you get from watching a cheap movie is very different than the value you get from having a healthy outcome from healthcare. And, and I don't actually have the best answer, but it does link into what I said before, which is an effective balance between legislation, regulation, and enforcement. And so the biggest problem is anything that requires value has to be more complicated than tracking dollars. And so whatever it is needs to have the appropriate legislation, regulation, and enforcement for it to make sense. Um, I think that carbon, carbon credits is a good start. It's a good proof to see whether or not can we embed a value system that's critical for humanity right now into capitalism. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, awesome. Hello, and welcome back to the Next Iteration podcast. Today's guest is the passionate, fearless Michael Millar. Michael's got the rare combination of being a technical developer, an operator, and a strategist. It's led to him to some interesting positions and places, including being the founder of Virtual Health, a digital health startup based out of Toronto, uh, being the e-health strategy lead at the Ontario Ministry of Health, and a lecturer at University of Toronto. So we're excited to talk to him today about his experiences with healthcare entrepreneurship and the healthcare field in general. Uh, he's also Damien's boss, so we'll try and make sure we don't get Damien fired. Uh, so those are the goals for today's episode. Sound good? <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Awesome. Welcome. And it's uh, less about me getting fired and more about making Michael's investors happy. So that's the goal here. Right. <laughs> so Michael, I figured we'd uh, kind of ease you in by asking you a question that's a little, I guess that's near and dear to your heart. And you're very familiar with this question already. And that is, what is your professional superpower? Oh, uh, yeah. What is my professional superpower? So uh, you're bringing that because, um, you know, I, I've always believed that, uh, you know, the question I ask the people is, no matter what job you start, no matter what new scary thing you go into, um, your professional supervisor is something that you can lean on to and, and get confidence from. And I think it's important. And so for me, um, what I always lean on is that I actually, I seek chaos. I love chaos because it's an opportunity for innovation. It's an opportunity for growth. And I guess my superpower is, you know, looking at chaos and finding a path through. So, um, yeah, I, I'm the weird ship that charges towards a hurricane in search of the eye of the storm. So that's kind of my superpower. I mean, that's perfect for a startup founder then. You're literally immersed <laughs> in chaos every single day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I uh, maybe bit off more than I can chew when it comes to that. Oh, you think? We'll see. We'll, I we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, and so uh, we want to talk about your career a bit and then jump into your thoughts around uh, entrepreneurship and your own personal experience, of course, within that domain. And then uh, we'll see where the conversation guides us. But I just wanted to throw out real quick that one of my favorite things about you is that you're kind of a nerd, too. And I mean that in the best possible way. But how much has science fiction sh shaped your outlook for the future? Oh, that's so funny. You know what? 
I'm loud and proud for this one. So um, I, you know, when I was growing up, um, I, I remember that I was, I was looking for role models and that kind of stuff, right? And I didn't really, um, I didn't work that young as an age and I was a little too heads down on math stuff, but I, I absolutely love Star Trek. And not because of its ships flying in space, but what people don't know is that the entire Star Trek Next Generation series was, they, they hired like scientists and people and they, they like really thought out about it, but they actually modeled many of the episodes around real things that were happening at the time. You know, at that time it was Cold War. There's a lot of things happening. There's conflicts. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, like, I, I love this concept of uh, politics-less environment of people working together for a, a large cause. And then you snap back to reality once the episode's done. But um, I did learn, I'm not like, I'm not a Trekkie nerd by any regard, but uh, what I loved about it is it was a moral lesson wrapped in hope. And so for me, there's something nice about that. And I feel like it's actually more true today than it ever has been with all the misinformation and everything that it has. I, I continue to, I don't believe in that image, but I believe that the only way that we can get to a better place is if we try finding that ideal. If we work together to solve hard problems without uh, you know, trying to one-up each other, but working together in that team to solve things that are worth solving. Uh, that's why I strive for, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I actually get to live that on a day-to-day -day basis. So, mm -hmm. I think it's super interesting because I think I've seen a trend in some of the more, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but some of the more personally interesting uh, startup founders is that they all kind of shared that that interest in science fiction growing up. And I think the interesting thing there is that you know, these authors, they've done all the thinking in how the, the future is going to shape itself, right? Like they've thought those things through. So I think it's cool to be able to take inspiration from those things. And some of the technology springing up, springing up today seems to be so science fiction-esque. And, you know, there's the saying that uh, reality is stranger than fiction, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Every day, it seems to be more and more true. Like with looking at Moore's Law and seeing how things have played out, and, you know, I, I just love seeing that. But is there, yeah, do you have any other thoughts on that? No, I think it's so true. I mean, like, it's those realizations that made me also start appreciation, uh, appreciating, like, arts and culture more, right? Because um, reality mimics fiction, right? So the thing is, the, you know, you talk to us 20 years ago and you have a tricorder in Star Trek. You're like, that's crazy, but it's cool. Like legitimately, I can think of the next six technology evolutions that we need to enable tricorders. And so it's absolutely crazy that we're there. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, I, I make this comment to people, which is my definition of success is how much of my inner child can I preserve as I get older? I love that's, that. Yeah. And so part of that Great is definition. dreaming for uh, in, a, in a better world and how to get there and just fighting away apathy every step of the way. That's that's really my challenge. And, you know, it's a great time to be alive. Like for my, with my superpower, with all the chaos that's going on. Um, it, But we have a chance to see, you know, to embed integrity in the work that we do. And so, you know, 
you know, anyways, I, I'm, I'm fortunate for every opportunity that we have and the people I get to work with on a daily basis. So. Awesome. I think this reminds me of the conversation we had recently on the podcast with another entrepreneur named Swish, who's the founder of TrueFan. I think there's a common theme here that you have to be a fundamental optimist. You have to have a vision for the world that is better than the current vision or the current reality. And you have to work to make that vision a reality, right? That's kind of like the whole premise of starting a company. Um, so actually, I have a question for you because you mentioned that, you know, oh, you see the Star Trek episode, it, 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 there's a moral message, there's all these people working together for a common cause and then you get back to reality, right? Uh, and I think that's a sentiment a lot of us can, can relate to, especially with, you know, the Canadian government and how things have been working recently and, and you know, sort of like the political sphere. So um, my question for you is you, you did spend some time in government. So um, how did being in government affect your, your sort of like optimism and drive? Did it like lessen it? Did it increase it? And, and has you kind of like, work in government with given given that fundamental optimism yeah you know um i I remember bringing this up i remember um you know if you go back to the the time before time so 1990 (laughs) um you know in the 1970s it was a privilege to be a public servant right you had the ability to shape and deliver on the executions of government you you know coming out of uh, I, I'm not a historian, but coming out of World War II, you reaffirm democracy. You're able to say, and you're a part of that mechanism and making it happen. But the world has changed, right? We, you know, um, although, you know, now what is working for a government? It's changed quite a bit. But it, to me, it hasn't. The impact that you have, the ability, you know, I, I, I like looking at things in a simpler way, you know, not letting the complexity make it seem negative, which is something that everyone gets trapped in. The more complex it is, our brains are naturally wired to say it's, it's complex, so it must be bad and it must be not done correctly. But the simplicity of government is, is that it's all the population putting our money and our capabilities together and having an entity re- represent and enact that purpose. And so for me, when I was in government, I really believe that. I just, you know, I tried working in startups. They, they didn't want to change healthcare. Like at that time, the startups I worked in, it was just about making a buck. It wasn't about actually improving care, changing health, really improving public care and accessibility of care. And I felt like I could do it in government. And, and the answer is you can do it in government, but you have to be the right type of person. I think that people who have the long view, the people who understand that policy takes time to change and are willing to work and advocate for it as you go through, they'll love the the government. But what I learned about myself is I'm much too impatient for that approach. And so for me, it was like, I I am a a child of the technology era. I, I see the potentials of the cloud and what it could do and I, I realized that it actually is a partnership between the government and vendors that will enact the change that I want to see in healthcare. And so I believe that there are many people who believe in that change in health in government. I just didn't see as many vendors who were um, oriented to kind of execute on things like the quadruple aim or real value delivery. And so, you know, when's the last time you've seen a B Corp in, in digital health? you'd think they'd be rife with them, but they aren't really around, right? And so, you know, that's when I make my decision. So I think the government is a great place to work, but you need to have the attitude of, 
understanding that policy takes time. You need to have patience and the willpower to see it through. But you can you can get a lot of fulfillment if you go through that angle as well. Uh, since you mentioned it there, I kind of want to tease apart that answer a bit and dive a little more into that. So having been on both sides of the public and private sector now, what do you think about that constant dance between uh, regulations and innovation? Because it seems like both partners seem to step on each other's feet a lot. You know, it's um, the thing about regulation legislation is that they're missing the last component, which is enforcement, right? So, you know, if you have tough law, cracks down on people and no one enforces it, it's not really a regulation, right? It's just something that you need to avoid. And so for me, um, you know, you, I, I really respect the natural forces of the market. Uh, I, I think that innovation is driven by competitive landscapes where people can actually thrive. But regulation, um, it, it's an interesting concept because uh, in working in healthcare, you have to look at regulation certifications strategically and their barriers of entry more so than they are um, actually enacting on their true purpose, right? So are privacy laws there in a way to truly defend a citizen's privacy or are they there to, to actually make it more complicated for new entrants to be competitive? Right, and so um, in a perfect world, if you if your primary purpose was to create privacy for um, for everyone without stifling innovation, you would create uh, identity management and a and a canned way that startups could interact and participate in a competitive market. But they don't have that canned identity. They don't have a structured security model that startups can work in, and so as a result you have a lot of complexity, you have a lot of um, regulations that are near impossible for just a starry-eyed new innovator to work in, right? Like for me to feel ready to start, uh, to create a startup, I had to wait until the, uh, the ripe age of 37 or 36 to understand the healthcare space enough. And even with that, I constantly am surprised by these same challenges. And so Really what we want, you know, what I would like to see is regulation that is established with a, a platform that can support innovation. And so if you're implementing privacy laws, then create frameworks and guides that make it easy for co companies to comply or new startup engineers to work on it. And so, you know, that's kind of my one observation. I mean, like I, I want competition uh, you know, if you have procurement rules, make them enforce them strictly, right? Or else don't have them. Because mm -hmm. if you don't enforce them, then whoever the incumbents are will learn how to play around them and get past them. And so, you know, uh, it is actually part of the vision of the product that we're creating, which is to create uh, a system where hospitals can innovate, right? The whole point of what we're doing with our digital win solution is to make it easy to expose an API in a secure and consent manner um, to allow for innovation without having them to learn all these rules about behind the scenes. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would like to see a lot more level playing field. I, I would like it so that a passionate nurse or health informatician could actually create an app company 
and deliver it effectively in our ecosystem. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that we've quite set that landscape up for them. Emma, it's crazy. Your answer is so prescient because it seems to answer some of the other questions we were planning on uh, asking a little later. But um, I, I guess just one more question on that is, do you think that's the main rate determining step, like the regulation piece from keeping healthcare being that picture of innovation? Or are there other considerations that come into play? Oh man, uh, healthcare is a very, very complicated domain, right? Um, it, it actually, I wanna answer a different question there. I, I don't encourage everyone to try understanding everything about healthcare before moving forward with something that they're passionate about. You know, um, it's a weird balance being in digital health where you have to, um, when the risk comes, you need to acknowledge it. But you could also stifle yourself by just trying to factor into all the risks, right? So when you introduce a new idea, um, sure, it helps a patient, but where's the funding going to come from? Does it make sense coming from a private doctor? How about a capitated doctor on a salary? Does it make sense from a hospital or a home care institution or community? How do they get their money? How is there, you can lose yourself. I think really, you know, my principle in creating my product was always this, which is I want to create unquestionable value in whatever we do. And then let's figure everything out after that, right? If I make life easier for a doctor, a patient and an administrator at the same time, I'll find the money. I'll be able to justify the payment from there. But I don't want to inundate myself with trying to understand or hack healthcare because it's very complicated. You have different provider types, nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, dentists, you know, specialists, and they all have different interests. And whenever you work inside a space with multiple interest groups that's publicly funded, that's literally one of the, like, that's literally the definition for hardest com company to start. And so one of the things that I wanted to simplify it around is create value, create unquestionable value in multiple domains, and then figure out how you're going to get paid for it after the fact. So that's how I started. Now I'm a little bit more calculated um, to all the investors listening, but um, <laughs> the sales plan and everything. Oh, for sure. All right. The sales plan came first for the investors. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Sales plan, <laughs> corporate forecast. And then I just created value. Of course. <laughs> Oh man, we need to live in a world where value is number one on the investor priorities. <laughs> maybe, maybe with the C corp. I don't know. Who knows? But we uh, actually have they they have a domain. They have uh, they're called impact investors. And what mm -hmm. happens is that they need more than returns. And we actually have one on our team uh, on our roster. Their name is Amplify Capital. And uh, yeah, we have to report quad, uh, quadruple aim KPIs, which is uh, for people who aren't in health. That's create better outcomes, reduce costs improve patient experience and improve provider experience. And so we have to provide those metrics in addition to our revenue and everything else. So um, they, they do exist out there. Uh, I think impact investment is a little bit more um, commonplace, but they're also creating new forms of corporations as well. B Corp was the standard, but now they have value-based organizations as well who have to embed that into their incorporation documents. So there's some interesting things coming out but yeah, there's not enough. There needs to be way more about it. And we actually need economies that are programmed around value creation, not against just getting more money, you know? Mm -hmm. So how do, like, what are the steps forward in, in creating that economy? I guess this is a huge question. Like, 
overthrow capitalism, <laughs> right? But like, how? What are some of the major steps? Like, we have B corps. You know, it seems like they haven't been adopted quite widely. We still have like an economic system that's you know fundamentally fundamentally based on you know our, our capitalist values, right? And and that puts money above everything else, right? Which in in a space like healthcare doesn't doesn't necessarily translate to patient outcomes and patient quality and patient care. So how do we move towards that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it kind of comes around the whole concept of how democracy is a worse governmental system except for everything else that exists. So in the same way, capitalism, capitalism gives us a gift and a curse of simplifying all value down to a single metric, which is a dollar, right? And so a value, the value that you get from watching a cheap movie is very different than the value you get from having a healthy outcome from healthcare. Um, and, and I don't actually have the best answer, but it does link into what I said before, which is an effective balance between legislation, regulation, and enforcement. And so the biggest problem is anything that requires value has to be more complicated than tracking dollars. And so whatever it is needs to have the appropriate legislation, regulation, and enforcement for it to make sense. Um, I think that carbon, carbon credits is a good start. It's a good proof to see whether or not can we embed uh, a value system that's critical for humanity right now into capitalism. But if that fails, then I think, you know, there was some interesting stuff that was done in France after the, the financial collapse in 2009 where they were trying to recast how to evaluate GDP. And it was a more wholesome kind of characteristic of, of qualities. Um, again, it didn't take effect. GDP calculations still are the same, but you know, ah, that's a sad thing. I just don't want us to wait until the next catastrophe before we have the, the impetus to do that. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, you should just do it in whatever you do. I'm running a business. I care about um, about global warming, so I should pay for carbon offset on hosting costs. Like you, you just got to do little actions on different things that you do as you go forward. So, uh, I, you know, that's that's what that's my best answer right now. I, I can't solve. <laughs> nice try though, <laughs> but I can't solve that. I was one. like, that I'm gonna be a millionaire. This is it. <laughs> the answer for all it's worth. <laughs> But then, like, we have the other problem there is that you have these giant hegemons who just don't give a shit about the rules or what everybody else is doing, right? And then if they're not playing by the rules that everybody else is trying to set, they're just so large of an entity that they, it doesn't really make a difference in the scheme of things. Like, with carbon tax, uh, carbon taxes are being applied to certain companies, right? They're willing to pay those rather than cut down on their carbon emissions just because for through a business lens, it makes more sense for them to do it. Even with the uh, Paris Climate Accord, China is like China didn't care. Like China's still doing China's thing. So I mean, it's I don't know how we get around that problem of getting everybody on the same playing field, right? Like even the United Nations, it's supposed to be this entity that everybody universally respects. You know, like this United Nation entity that everybody agrees that okay, we're doing everything in the world's best interest. But if you're doing the right thing. But I guess it was just concerned with doing the right thing for them rather than just doing the right thing, period. Yeah. I think the one thing that's really important is doing the right thing is, is very relative, right? You know, there's something to be said about 
a brick country saying, hey, you got to have 40 years of carbon ignorance to prop up your economies and do everything. And so I kind of understand where they're coming from, but, you know, really, sorry, there was a, a deeper point that I had in that is that the one thing that we can't let us, like, you cannot get to this point. And, and I believe in this so much. And it goes around my success is how much of your inner child that you preserve as you grow older. Don't let the complexity mean that you just do nothing. That is the easiest cop out that is, that is around, right? Do your little part. Help inform, communicate your value system to people around you. But there's a crazy revolution happening in over the next 20 years. It, it's an insane revolution that I know because I work in healthcare, which is we're going to have a lot of old people and not enough young people to maintain this elder, this aging population. Mm -hmm. But what I see with that isn't disaster or chaos, but a, a, a massive transference of power and influence to younger generations. So I actually see there, like, as we have this older population that relies on us innovating on different ways we can provide care and maintain healthcare, they're going to be sitting on their static retirement income, hoping that, that we can succeed. And they will put their, they need to put their funds into believing. And that group, that younger group of people is going to have so much more influence than we've had ever, because the, the rule until now has been there are more young people than there are old people, mm -hmm. right? And so the old people could use their money and their influence to really affect that because they had land, they had that. So their land value went up and everything. But as soon as the, the limited resource isn't land, right? Understand if there's less younger people, that means prices in cities to live are gonna go down. Because if I'm an older person, I don't wanna to have to live in a city, right? So you're, you're gonna have this massive economic shift happening over the next 20 years. But with that is going to come a political influence effect. And that's the reason why I say to people, stay true to your values. Because when that revolution, when that transference of power happens to the people who do the work, who move their hands, who are the resource and the tradespeople of the world, your values will dictate how governments operate, right? And we saw a little snippet in this pandemic because we told everyone to work from home. And now we're saying, come back to the office and no one's listening to the call. It's like, come back to the office and no one comes. And we're like, well, what's happening? It's like, you let us stay in a setting where we could reevaluate and get control of our time. And now our priorities have shifted. Mm -hmm. and, and look, as a positive recipient of this and a negative recipient of this, I, I don't see bad in that. I just see honesty in it, right? People are more aligned with what they want to do and how they want to live. But I mean, like, that's just a snippet of what's going to happen over the next 20 years. Because when hospital systems can't staff up on PSWs and nurses and doctors, they're going to have to listen to their demands all the way from how they want to work, what type of work that they want to do, what they value, right? And so, um, you know, uh, look, as I said, my inner child is like straight up 14 years old. I've kept it that young. And I still believe that there's change and, and hope in the future. And so I'm so just, <laughs> just hold I'm on excited. to that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was so well spoken. 
I'm just I'm ready for the revolution. Like the way you're describing, it's like the proletariats uh, taking over the bourgeoisie. Then we learned that in elementary school. So I'm very excited for that future. Yeah, but we're going to take them over by making sure that they can have secure livelihoods. We're, mm. we're going to. That's the crazy thing about the revolution. It's going to be a revolution of care. It's going to be like you have to live in the world that you bestowed on us. And so global warming is our concern. We're going to prioritize that. And we're going to light up our economies by creating renewable energies and getting off of this crappy grid and watch us and cheer us on as we do that. But just the worst thing that you can do is letting your optimism die out before that moment comes. That's, if I could say to anyone, just stay, stay, I believe the term is woke and just be true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Definitely the right term. Is it, do you, uh, what, what future are we heading to? Are we heading to like Wally or like, do you think that we're going to get our, okay. So the question I want to ask is like with the global warming bit, I know this is kind of like off topic a bit. Well, but, this is way off topic. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. So with the global warming, like there's, okay. I don't know which one of two futures people are imagining that one, the problem's magically going to go away because some entrepreneur is going to come up with this radical new innovation. We're going to sequester all the carbon from the air and then everything's going to be okay. Or we pass that point of no return, shit goes downhill, and then, I don't know, we end up on Mars or something. But, like, what kind of future do you envision there? Do you think we're going to have get our stuff together and, like, quickly? Hey, man, those both sound bad. You've got <laughs> one that's a benevolent dictator and the other one that's a dystopian chaos. So um, I, I, I literally just spoke what I think the future is. I think that there's a massive revolution and transference of values. And like, look, when I look at what's happening right now, I call this the, this is the final fight of the people that technology and progress has left behind, right? If you look at the people who are screaming at, at, at this being wrong, or you've done that, they actually have a valid comment, which is, uh, as a society, we shouldn't leave clusters of anyone behind, Right? If, if technology is improving the quality of life, don't let one area of it just not seek the value and feel left alone as technology leaves them in the dust. You know, find ways to bring them into the benefits and incorporate them. Like I, I'm really a jumble of different values. I, I, I think I've talked three times about how we're at that point where minimum income needs to be given. We've, we've secured enough productivity from technology gains that we can do this right you mm -hmm. shouldn't have to work just to survive you should work because you feel passionate you want to do that and that's the revolution that's going to come right that's a revolution that's going to come because as the workforce diminishes the 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 need for technology to automate the need to create connections that are sustainable to create sustainable processes is going to be inherent and so I do believe, I, I strongly believe in 20 years, it's going to be a self-fulfilling destiny. So if in 20 years, we get to the 20-year point and everyone's disillusioned and their inner child is dead and they're just like, there's no hope, then that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's the future that we get. And to be honest, the one that asks for the benevolent leader is also that same heart. You have to be a broken person to only believe that a, a leader can take you out of it rather than we ourselves can take ourselves out of it. But I do think it is unfortunate 
we are still uh, very much live and do type of civilization and species. And so I think until we see the effects of global warming, even though I see them, like they're there, I don't have to actually experience them myself to know that they exist, but some people do. And that's the only way that the change is going to happen. But I, I do, I, my firm belief is hold on to that belief, hold on to where it is, because when that change, that shift in power happens, what we believe will become the truth. And if we believe it can be that change, we will shift the economies, we will shift our priorities, right? Like imagine if we could become a society that seizes the hassle and instead embraces it and becomes masters at integrating into nature and, 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 and understanding that and taking responsibility of that. As weird as it is, the moment that we understand nature and we know how to coexist with it, we'll actually unlock the space question as well. Because then we'll have an understanding of what sustainability is and we can carry that into space. But the last thing I want us to do right now is take the human condition that we see on Earth and put that onto another planet right now. Mm -hmm. That's a, that would just break. Amen. In some way, we actually need to evolve to be able to earn the right to get to that type one civilization concept. Yeah, I don't know if you, like, I feel like you should just run for office. I don't know if you're better suited entrepreneurship <laughs> or or just becoming the prime minister you got my vote though <laughs> no i just i i believe i just you, you, you can't life is hope right mm -hmm. like you can't deny that life is better now than it was 50 years ago mm -hmm. you cannot yeah. deny that we got problems they had problems back then also yeah right? but, but it's just just gotta you know couple that with like a one in 400 trillion chance of being born you gotta have gratitude for that right yeah, yeah, for sure. I actually have a follow-up question. That. So you seem to be somebody who like is very strong on their values. You live by your values and those values inform a lot of things, right? Like how you live your life, your views on, you know, government, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot. So I want to ask this in a, in a, in a different way. I want to ask you about the story of you starting Virto, but I want to hear it from a value-based perspective. So like, what about your values coincided to give you this idea to start Virto and how is Virto informed by your values? Give us a story from a value perspective. Oh, that's, that's actually a great question. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I started my journey in digital health probably 2005. That's, that's when I joined my first startup. And really my, my value was very simple there. I believed, I wanted, you know, as a computer scientist, <laughs> And any computer scientists are listening, this is just a truth about computer science. Whatever you take as your first job will very likely become the, the, the industry that you work in for the rest of your life. So I was in Alberta, I could have worked for energy, I didn't feel like it. So I wanted to work in either healthcare or education and I started healthcare. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because I wanted to pour, you know, if I'm spending eight hours a day, five days a week in something, I wanna pour into something that creates value in a domain that I care about, right? And that's why it was healthcare. So I, I just had so much energy that I wanted to dump inside this. I was a complete nerd. Um, so I would work late into the night over weekends because it just it aligned with what I wanted to do. And, and to be honest, I enjoyed it. I didn't feel like I was working that long because I would do something I would deliver it and I'd see them using it in a clinic and I just lose it. I loved it. It was like this vicious 
virtuous feedback, right? That I liked. And it just, it, it kind of created a little bit of work alcoholism is me. <laughs> but what I realized in every company that I worked in is that it all came down to revenue, right? So even if it was the right thing to do for clinician, if I couldn't monetize it, I couldn't work on it. And I kept on hitting this wall over and over and over. I'm like, they just need this and then they'll be able to help patients. And I'm like, we can't monetize it. Don't work on it. And I was like, oh man, it killed every time. And then I worked in two or three different companies. Every time it was like, just if we can't monetize it, we can't focus on it. And I was like, are you serious? Like if we create the value, we could create a new product and monetize that. Just a little bit of dreaming, a little bit of R&D to get to that next stage. And it just never happened. And then that's when I took my master's of health informatics and, and worked in the government. And then I said, okay, maybe government's going to be different. Maybe, you know, they believe in values. They believe in sustainability. But then it was about the interest groups. And it was about not raising attention, keeping your head down. Uh, I remember when I was in government, I went to another department to ask them a question about their technology. And I came back. And everyone was looking at me like I was an alien. I was like, what happened? I'm like, you don't go to other departments. I'm like, what? I'm like, but you don't, you're not supposed to. And I was like, that's wild. How do you work? They've got technology that can help our mission. Why don't we collaborate together? And it was just such this weird thing. And I kept on seeing these barriers. And so my values was, I didn't want to really invest in my company until I knew that out of the gate, I could provide value, unquestionable value. Like, and my value was better patient care. And I, I saw the problem. I saw providers wasting 50% of their time with documentation and administration. So I knew I had to attack that. But I knew that if I was smart with the way that I solved it, I could solve the patient problem. And so my rule was I needed to solve three problems, at least three in the quadruple aim before I start. Unless I could answer that clearly how I would do that, I didn't have the right to start a business. And um, that's when I was working at a bank um, in, in, in BI, I learned more about data flow. I'm like, I think it's data. I think it's, it's about unlocking what one data point does in healthcare. So when one doctor or nurse writes down a progress note, and just has some information inside it, I need to unlock and unleash like, like a nuclear explosion, the amount, you know, if you said this person who had lung cancer has started smoking again, right? That's profound. Like there's so much stuff that has to be triggered from that. Mental health, social health interventions, a checkup again, maybe another screening. And so that one comment that they just wrote down has explosive data potential. And so I wanted to, I wanted to do that and I, and I saw it. I saw how I could build the technology that would do that. I realized that I needed to make sure that I could listen to a bunch of systems without increasing the cost of doing it. And when I saw that path, I was like, I, I remember, um, I actually told my wife and she said, you should quit. She always wanted me to be an entrepreneur in November, but it took, I, I had to take a break from work. And as, as we went to Hawaii for uh, a vacation and I remember it was like an hour getting off the plane when I was just walking on the beach. I just needed to get away from the humdrum. And I was like, yeah, now's the time. And I just looked over and I said, this is when we're going to start the business. And yeah, it's because I saw that. I, I, the value that I needed to be true is I needed to have a win-win-win. I didn't want to just have some product that I could monetize. I needed to create 
unquestionable value in the patient, the providers, and for the cost and sustainability of healthcare. And that's when I decided to create the company. It's an amazing story. And on the beach too, come on, that's like picturesque. We gotta make a movie out of that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. You needed to step away, but I had a whole week to think about it. And it was literally an hour getting off the airplane. And I was just like, you know, you got one life to live. I guess it was a little bit of a year decision, but- <laughs> Those are the best um, decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just gotta do it at some point. And yeah, I mean, like now we have 38, great people making a cool product that delivered value. Hey man, I wake up every day. I'm grateful just to be able to, to do what I do. So such a beautiful thing. And there's, and there's so many, so many different ways. Like I want to go about this. I don't even know which one of those strings I want to tug at right now, but uh, maybe we can, maybe we can, we can touch on the interop interoperability piece because like data silos, that's something you hear about all the time everywhere in healthcare. Right. And like you mentioned, like just empowering that one data point can have so many ripple effects. And while every everybody else is losing their minds over data, right? Data is a new oil. Healthcare is still like blind in that sense. So what's the steady state for that? Like, is it that we need a blanket province-wide interop interoperability requirement or like where, where do we go from there? <laughs> yeah, this one's, uh, you're, you're, I got to watch how I comment on this. Oh, well, that sounds a tricky one. The investors are listening. Yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 investors are listening. That's all. It goes through my mind all the time. No, no, my investors deal with my crazy all the time. <laughs> um, you know, the problem with interoperability is that we think that it's an option. That's, that's the thing. Like, people deploy tools and they're like, here's what I do. And by the way, you can think about interoperability. This is how we do interoperability. And, and, and really that's where the paradigm is just missed next up. I mean, I truly believe that healthcare data belongs to the patient, right? And so if the patient is going to this provider in this hospital or this primary care doctor or this community care doctor, no offense, but why do any of those providers have any say on how the patient's data gets to be used to improve their care? All that choice should reside with the patient. And, you know, bar assigning a secure USB, even though every security guy says don't use USB, that is uh, surgically attached to every patient. There's no way to enable uh, interoperability around the patient. And so the, the first thing that I did before I started my company is I said, I need to think about infrastructure that assumes there are no brick and mortar. It has to assume, it follows the patient no matter what. And so it, it assumes that there's a patient journey. And part of the technology and the resiliency that we had to think about from a data perspective is that interoperability isn't there. But if I design my system, assuming that I have visibility into the whole journey, then when it doesn't integrate, the only thing that happens in our system is we don't see that piece of the journey. We still understand that the patient is on a full journey. And so if we do work with one hospital system, we can integrate as much as we can with the data access that we have, but our technology is ready to partner up with the community or the primary care as soon as that reality happens. Mm. But the problem is that people have bought a lot of technology that does the exact opposite, where it assumes that it always is going to have access to data within its brick and mortar that when you go into community, they'll send the data back to the hospital so that they can fill out that journey. And, uh, you know, there's, there's intention, 
there's politics, there's values embedded in the way that you design your technology, right? And so I just designed the technology assuming that even when we deliver for the people who pay us, that it's only part of an unfinished story, that it has the want and the ability to connect with partners in the future. And so that's what gives me hope. And so I invest in technology to remove the barriers of interoperability because there's more barriers to interoperability in the legal and the liability sphere than there are in the technology sphere, right? If you want me to send a data packet from one, tech, one in, uh, cloud system to another, that's just an API call. The controversy is in liability and uh, on, on responsibility of ownership of data. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I've, I've created the technology that can basically ignore uh, these silos. Now it's, it's the healthcare providers move. Now you figure out how to make legal and everything get out of the way. And I'm ready to play inside that interoperability game. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So we are getting a little close to time and there's a ton more questions we want to ask you. So Fouad, how do you think about entering a quick lightning round before we ask our final question? I'm absolutely down for a lightning round. Lightning rounds are my favorite. All right. Oh, all right. All right. So Michael, first question on the lightning round, what aspect of entrepreneurship is hardest to teach? Oh, uh, uh, grit in face of overwhelming negativity, I think is the hardest thing to teach. There's a lot of adversity there that most people aren't really braced for. They see all the success stories and the survivorship bias and they're like, oh, I'm gonna just do this thing. I'll release this product, make a couple million, retire early. Yeah, yeah, it's how, do you, how, how can you re... You have to be a realist to manage a business, right? Cause it's not easy, but you can't lose sight of optimism. And so those are naturally opposite forces, making sure the, uh, the, the books make sense while still keeping your eye on the unlikely optimistic scenario. And so that's, I would say, the hardest thing to teach to entrepreneurs. What's your favorite failure? Oh, my favorite failure. Uh, my favorite failure. Special or personal. That's true. Well, personal then. I'll go personal. Um, I actually got kicked out of university. And um, to me, that was a massive failure but it restarted my value system. I think before that my value system was suppressed, but when I had to live on my own, I gravitated, I focused. And um, when that was ready to go and I went back to school in 2003, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so um, I think I was, it lit the fire in me. So uh, 2003, I went back to school and I graduated in 2005 as a computer scientist. That's a four-year program. I did something crazy during that time, but it didn't matter because I know what I wanted to do. And then I haven't looked back since. I think the beautiful thing about failures like those is that even though in the moment it seems completely world-ending, like this is the end of the line type of thing, it's one of those things that sets you up for later success, right? Because you had this renewed sense of your values. You knew you had this purpose to why you were doing everything and that was able to take you so much further. Do you ever deal with imposter syndrome? Um, I'm just trying to think because I've heard that term a lot recently and I've, I, I realize I need to, I probably haven't because 
I, I, it really, it's been something hard that isn't natural for me to be able to react and to coach and mentor people through, right? Um, but I mean, like, I guess my family would say I always dreamed and a dreamer naturally has the opposite of imposter syndrome, which is they are just imposters. They always, <laughs> right? Like a dream unfulfilled is just an imposter, mm. right? And so uh, as weird as it is, an entrepreneur is an imposter. Uh, because you believe in something that doesn't exist. I constantly say this to the team. The one truth is the world doesn't want a startup to survive because the world already ticks without that startup. Mm -hmm. So you need to prove why you need to uh, uh, exist. But I definitely don't think I suffer from this syndrome because I constantly have to tell people that I'm moving towards a truth that doesn't exist right now. And so... I naturally have to have, you know, the only difference between becoming an imposter, being an imposter and a visionary is a belief in yourself to get to that end, end goal, right? Mm -hmm. And then actually doing it. Those are the only two things that separate an imposter from a visionary. So um, just make sure that, you know, I personally haven't uh, uh, struggled with it, but, you know, I, I don't believe in the term fake it till you make it right? I say, fake it till you become it, right? I always say this to people, you're allowed to fake it till you become it. But, but the thing is that you don't, don't get to a position where you secured your status by continuing to fake and then just residing on it. Fake it to earn the right to innovate and move yourself forward to the next level. And so that's how I've always believed it. So, yeah. As, as an imposter myself, I absolutely see this and agree. Um, yeah, I think it, the imposter syndrome can become chronic when you take that feeling and you start doubting yourself. And, you know, a dreamer doesn't doubt themselves because there's always something else to hope for, right? So, yeah, yeah for sure. I, I think it's, yeah. there's a big difference there. Uh, okay, next lightning round question. And then uh, we have a traditional final question that we ask all our guests and we'll get to that. Um, who, as in singular person, has been most influential in terms of being... In, in terms of having an influence on your value system and the way you think? Oh, you inspire a lot of people. So who inspires you? <laughs> who inspires me? So this is like, are you talking like a role model or like a person? No, you said who who is fundamental in helping me develop my value system? Yeah. It can be someone you know personally or someone you just aspire to to be yeah yeah you know I, I don't mean to be corny but um it's actually my wife um and the reason why was the this the the thing that tempered my value system the most was my uncertainty and understanding if it actually makes sense like i've always been I always wanted to help people. I always believed in paying it forward and investing and, and everything in my life kept on pointing to that not being true. Like it was just not an equation that kept on working. And then when I met my wife, um, she had the same value system as I did. So first of all, wow, someone else has my same value system. So proof of life. Um, but then because we had a similar value system, 
we got a lot of strength because when I saw situations where hers was being challenged, I would assist. And then when she saw situations where mine was being challenged, she would come. And it's made me addicted to just living to values because uh, it's just supported constantly through her. And then as, as I was able to be louder with my value system, then I started seeing other people come in. And that's how I, I do think, I would like to hope that, that that value system is actually one of the foundational things that created my company. Not just the fact that I want to get rich or change healthcare, but we live by values. I'm predictable to my, the people who work with me because they know what I want to do. And so, yeah, I think it was that ability to have a like person so much and reinforce. And then it just, that, that interplay just created a lot of strength and, and cemented it. So, yeah, I didn't mean to be corny, but I, no, that's oh, no, I love it. Yeah. I need a wife. <laughs> <laughs> I really need one. <laughs> you need a partner. You just need that someone to validate your type of crazy. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then it gets kind of fun after that. Yeah, I, I might have shoot her a message after to take a listen to this because I'm sure she'll love hearing you talk <laughs> about it like this. It's very flattering. So we have four minutes left. So Michael, I want to take the opportunity. I've actually asked you this question before. I don't know if you remember it, but our favorite final question to ask our guests is, if you had a billboard that would reach millions or even billions of people, what would you put on that billboard? And why? Oh, I think I did answer this. So now we get to see how consistent I am. So the last time you uh, stratified it down to health informaticians, so you can do the same thing again, or if you want to keep it general, that's entirely up to you. Um, yeah, I think it's better to put it to a specific audience. So let me just say, you know what, though, we've, we've had a lot of general themes. So I do want to reinforce the one that I came down to, which is the future is going to become what you believe it will become, right? And because it's a lot more confusing to say, preserve your inner child is my definition <laughs> of success. But I, I do believe that the collective belief in hope, you know, that year when we elected, when Obama was elected, you could feel something was different. Like it lasted for like six months. Mm -hmm. Just didn't turn into anything just so tangible. But I mean, it did. Obamacare is a big deal in the States. But I really believe that, you know, it's not a, the future will become what we want it to be. So if everyone believes that we are out of control, that there's large dark forces controlling what we do and global warming can't be fought off, that's what we're going to get. We're just going to be riding a ship called Earth that we have no control, no understanding, no connection with. And man, that sucks. I, I got to believe in more. And I believe and I see, you know, I constantly see it in the people that I work with every day. I just, that's why I'm just so lit up. It's just like seeing this potential unlocked, seeing people, you know, and being able to create an environment where there's no ceiling. It's just go crazy. Do your craziness thing be the best you can. And we're here to support you if you go a little crazy on that journey. That's what I want. And I think the world's going to be forced to do that to the younger generation very quickly. I think that the power that a single worker has in 20 years is going to be so disproportionate 
that you will be able to force beliefs in the simple act of you contributing your brain, your hands, your energy into a cause. And so believe that that exists, right? And then one thing that we have to know is, you know, the interesting thing about capitalism is, is capitalism funds what we want it to fund. If we believe that the future is in retooling renewable energy and making things hopeful, then we will, that's what will create value. Those are the most highest paying jobs. Mm-hmm. But if we, if we think that one-time entertainment or immediate gratification are the things that are the most valuable and luxuries are, that will be what's the most expensive, right? Like that's a, that's a mind over matter thing is, is that society will pay for what society wants. And so the truth is that we don't pay for renewable energy because that's not actually what society wants right now. And we'll have an opportunity to change that dialogue over the next two decades. So. What we want is a solution for climate change, right? Yeah, and, 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 and I always say this to people, who cares? Even if climate change wasn't real, isn't it just cool to know that as a civilization, you're so badass that you're sustainable in everything that you do? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just like, like, you know, and, and just taking control of our own destiny. I think that there's opportunity. We're going to be faced with a lot of tribulations before that, mm-hmm. but just that's one thing, you know, you know, the future is going to become what we believe in. So just, that's why I'd say it. So thank God the future belongs to optimists. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh man. Thank you, Michael. This is absolutely amazing. I had no expectations of the episode. I've never met you, but honestly, this is one of my favorite conversations like ever on the podcast. Like I thought we'd talk about health entrepreneurship. I was like, Damien's got this, you know, let me sit back. Like not my area of expertise, but wow. Like this is amazing. And I had a really good time and I'm sure Damien did the same. Before we sign off, is there anything you want to promote? Anything you want to leave our audience with? Uh, Anything like that? Uh, Maybe the only thing is like, you know, if you're interested in healthcare, making change, you're a technologist. We're always looking for awesome people with great potential that we can unlock. So you know, hit me up or, you know, at, at, uh, at health And, um, I definitely, if you're passionate, if this like lights you up, I'd love to have you have a conversation with you. And I can definitely corroborate that it is a beautiful place to work with amazing people. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. <laughs> you get to keep your job. <laughs> the investors are also listening. So just, yeah. you know, always we love our investors. Yeah. We will definitely link uh, the site in the description, but thank you again, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's always a pleasure hearing you speak. So hopefully we can uh, have you on again sometime in the future after we have Obama on. That'd be a crazy follow-up. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a good follow-up. Get Obama on. <laughs> okay, guys. Have a great day. Cheers. Yeah. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.